Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode, COVID-19 update. Welcome to Psychiatrist Guide, your one-stop shop for all the psychiatry news you could ask for. Coming to you hot! Number one tip, stay alive, don't get it. It's bad for you. <laughs> it gets in your lungs. She has a number of homes and a large number of cars. I had an interesting experience this morning. I drove to work, but I couldn't find the parking spot. Because, I know why. Yeah, why? Because <laughs> our parking lot is a morgue now? Because our parking lot is a morgue. That was a very interesting experience. There are trailers, multiple trailers. I put a picture of it in the group. Did you see it or no? I, I, I'll look later. To be quite honest, I, I don't feel like I need to see that right now. <laughs> I hear you. But uh, yeah. I hear uh, you. But yeah, multiple trailers and the military is there. I assume it's the National Guard helping to set everything up. Um, there also saw military people walking through the hospital. So very interesting uh, experience. Not something Strange I thought I'd be times. seeing. Yeah. I didn't expect that I would be going to work terrified of being in the hospital. I've never been scared of the building. And that's, that's the feeling I have now. And I remember uh, this... At this point last month, when I was driving to work and I was driving to Hackensack, which is one of the hospitals in Bergen County, which is one of the hardest hit earliest yeah. counties, mm-hmm. driving to work, I was, I was on the street. I was looking at Hackensack. I could see it. And then I was at a red light and I did the thing that you're not supposed to do. I was checking my phone, looking at the WhatsApp group and I saw someone, maybe you posted the f- article saying that the first positive patient was there. And I remember just looking at the hospital and I was like, oh my God, what do I do? And I called my dad, who's an infectious disease doctor. And I said, we have, it's, it's there. What do I do? Do I go? And he's like, of course you got to go. What are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) So, but, and I, and I'm going and I've been going and I've. By the way, we both have the privilege of having been tested at this point. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. You much earlier than me. Um, but, do you want to, you want to talk about your experience? Sure. And I, I don't want to keep people on the edge of their seats too much. I'll say that we're both negative. Correct. Thank God. But, um, yeah, so I was, so like I said, I was working at Hackensack hospital and I was working on consult liaison, which for psychiatrists is a, uh, rotation where you see patients with acute psychiatric needs in the emergency room. So maybe someone who really feels like, you know, hurting themselves is the only option, or maybe someone who's acutely psychotic, and they're brought to the emergency room for one reason or another. And then I'm one of the first psychiatrists to assess that person in the emergency room. So I'm in the emergency room. And increasingly over the course of the month, more and more patients in the emergency room have it, and the rooms suddenly become isolation rooms. And, um, you know, I'm in there eight to 10 hours a day on weekends, 12 hours a day. So I started to feel a little feverish and short of breath. So I got tested. I went in to actually, I 
this is this is how anxious I am as a person. <laughs> I was working there. I had the shortness of breath and the fever, and I left. I went home, and oh, I really? said to my dad, I think I need to get tested. Can I go to your hospital to get tested? My dad works at Trinitas. And he said, you can, but you know, you're not an employee there. You might get treated better if you go where you work. And I I thought about it. And then I drove back to Hackensack, went to the walk-in part of the emergency room. Whole thing took less than an hour. I got uh, an intake done by a nurse, which I had been working with earlier that day. That's awkward. <laughs> yeah. They asked me like two questions. Um, at that point, I think if you were an employee and you said that you thought you had it, they'd probably just test you right away. It was very early. It was very early, yeah. And um, they asked me almost no questions and they told me to sit back. They gave me an N95 and they told me to sit back in the waiting room for a little bit. So I did. I was sitting there with an N95 and a bunch of other people waiting with N95s. And then a nice guy comes out and calls out a bunch of our names and takes us to this tent. We sit in the tent. And I noticed that before we sit down, he's disinfecting every seat individually. We sit in the tent. You wait for a little bit. And then you get called into... The tent is kind of in the parking lot, but it's also underneath an overhang. So you're waiting there. And then you get called into like a side entrance, a door that I've never noticed at Hackensack. And I've been working at Hackensack in one capacity or another for five years now. A door I've never noticed that said decon on it. Oh, really? Yeah. So they take you into the decon room from the tent. In the decon room, there's a nurse and an APN, both in full PPE with a rolling workstation. And they sit there, they basically ask the same two questions. And then right away, they stick the, they stick the swab down my throat. For me, they did a strep and RPP, respiratory pathogen panel, and the test for COVID-19. The COVID test, they did nasal swab or in the throat? Nasopharyngeal, for both, actually. But but they went through the mouth or they went through the nose? They went through the nose, which was quite an experience for both of them. For For one of them, I mean, it really goes back until it stops. Yeah. And that was like, I was like, ugh. And it was even more traumatic. Yeah. Mine wasn't that deep. But um, I've had that before, and I hate it. Yeah. Oh my god, I was bleeding a little bit back there. God, we shouldn't be I saying this now. People are gonna be scared to get tested. Uh, we, well, you can take that part out. It, it was but very maybe, easy. Yeah. It was. It was wonderful. Actually, I felt better immediately. There must be something therapeutic about the swab, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to say the worst part was waiting forty-eight hours to get the result because during that time I was truly self-quarantining. So I was in the same room, no contact with anyone, gloves and a mask anytime I went to the bathroom or anything. Wow. That was weird, and I cannot imagine doing that for 14 days. But I want to hear about your experience. No, no. I was going to say one more thing. Uh, so the the symptoms, did they go away for you, or like how long did they last? Because the thing is that apparently, you know, the tests have like a 30% false negative rate. So because so, even though mine was negative, I still feel like maybe I had it. I think that could be the case with me. But for me, there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. So for me, the most prominent symptom, the one that made me think, this is different. This is different from anything I've experienced before, and I need to go because I don't feel right was the shortness of breath. Now there's a couple extenuating circumstances there. One, I have bad asthma and it's allergy induced asthma and it's really bad allergy season. That could be one thing. Two, I'm an anxious person. So I feel a little something I could, I could hype myself up. I, I've never had a panic attack before in my life. Maybe this was some Maybe. version of that. That said, I'm still short of breath from time to time, still using my uh, inhaler. However, I am running and I don't feel like someone who had shortness of breath because of COVID could run three miles, but maybe I can. I don't know. Who knows? It's, a, it, it's like a walking pneumonia. I don't know if it's a running pneumonia. Yeah, exactly. Um, what about you? Yeah. So mine, um, I was exposed um, to several patients. Again, it was early on before- What hospital do you mind if I- It was at a, a university hospital in Newark, which is okay. now like the uh, 
headquarters for coronavirus in northern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Hence why we have the morgue there. So it was early on before there were a lot of patients. It's probably when there were there were a lot of cases, but we weren't testing yet. So I worked very closely without a mask with at least three patients that tested positive eventually. Mm. And around like it was weird because like the same day that I found out that they were transferred to medicine and tested positive was the day that I got sick. And my mm. my symptoms are mostly GI symptoms. I was vomiting and two days later I developed a low grade fever. Mm. And so eventually I got tested. I, I got tested at UH by Dr. Feedy actually, which is Oh really? He's, yeah, he's one of my favorite uh, medicine attendings. Great, great guy. guy. Great guy. And he's very good bedside manner too. Now having been his patient and his uh I guess resident. Wait, did they admit you to test? No, no, no. He was in the ACC. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, he was in the ambulatory care clinic doing the tests. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was quick. Mine was like a five hour because by then, by the time I got tested was a few weeks after you did. So we had the like the rapid turnaround test. So I found out, uh, I think later that night that mm-hmm. it was negative. Um, did you sw- Did you self-quarantine in that five hour period? No, because there was nothing different at that point because I, I had been sick like the week before. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At that point, it was just the point that I decided that I should get tested. Actually, the reason I decided to finally get tested, I wasn't going to bother, was that my daughter started throwing up that morning. Mm, So you wanted to know. So my wife also started to feel sick. And then my daughter never had a fever, but she started throwing up that morning. So I was like, I really better, you know, figure it out. Because I figured at that point, you know, the tests were really short supply. And the thought process was you could just assume that you have it. There wasn't really a need for me to be tested in that circumstance. Seems like it might have been maybe a simple something like food poisoning. He, yeah. You all got sick right around the same time. You're all vomiting. Well, it was th- it was days apart, though. Oh, so I, okay. I, but it could have been the flu. Mm. We all had the flu shot, but it could have been like, who knows? <clears throat> yeah. It's that's that's the craziest thing. It's like, yeah, it's always in the back of your mind. And also now in the back of my mind, as I get more comfortable working in these conditions is the idea that there is a 0% chance that I've not had it. Like, how could that even be possible? Like yeah. I, I've been in, I was exactly. in the ED, not washing my hands because it was at the very crest of this. So how could I possibly have avoided this? On some level, I know that that's kind of a silly thing to think. And on another level, that's I'm how kind I of like... That's yeah. how I feel, yeah. And I haven't been as exposed by at all, you know, compared to you because of where you're working right now. But that said, now I must say that I uh, do feel comfortable working at Hackensack. Thank God we have enough PPE. The units which have been converted to take care of these patients are very cordoned off from the other units. So, for example, they made the entire cafeteria a COVID unit. Oh, really? So, I had no idea. Yeah, so the wow. entire main cafeteria is closed. Yeah, it's huge. I think it's 60... Are there patients? And it's full, I assume, right? It's full. There's one entrance. There's no walls. So you PPE before you go in. So the whole thing is like the one, whole thing. A, a and, nightingale uh, unit, as they call it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gone in there yet. I hope I don't have to, but we'll see. And then the other units where they've uh, transferred them to become COVID units are um, they put like two sets of double doors up in the hallway. That's great. To uh, separate them. And they seal them like they're like sealed to the wall. They are sealed to the wall. I think their intended purpose is seal. And I don't know how good of a job they're doing, but there are two sets of double doors erected Mm -hmm. where there used to be none. And then you kind of walk in and and you walk out. And I must say, when I'm in those units, two things strike me. One is I actually feel safe because everyone's being calm, professional and cooperative. And two is 
I mean, my heart goes out to the nurses, man, because they are the ones who are really, really really getting exposed and putting their asses on the line. And they're, they're, they're so brave and they do it with, they just do it with this like calm. Most of them do this with, do it with like this calm sense of resolve that, uh, I envy and wish I had. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah yeah it's amazing it's amazing the job that they're doing yeah um, and everybody who's working you know yeah, emergency room people residents doctors apns rns everyone yeah, yeah it's really amazing it's nuts and i i i often think actually about something that you said um a while good. ago we'll see in the group which is that this is the this is the biggest psychiatric crisis of our time and mm-hmm. yet our workload is the lightest and we're not really being psychiatrists and it's just because of the nature of medicine everything needs to be geared towards taking care of these patients medically yeah. and our workload is decreased and while it kind of hit a nadir and now it's kind of climbing back up, back up yeah. and i'm seeing interesting presentations of things like delirium that i hadn't seen before because of covid right um you know it's so ironic that Besides our long-term psychotherapy patients that we already have really strong relationships with, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm being much of a counselor in this time. Do you? No, I mean, I, my general feeling this whole time has been that I want to do more. But like you were saying, you know, for context, a lot of psychiatric units have been closed, including at some of the hospitals that we rotate at and patients are being diverted, you know, to other places. They're taking over the units to make them COVID units. We happen to be in like, Two of the hospitals in New Jersey that take the most COVID patients. Yeah. You know, so like almost the entire hospitals are being kind of taken over by COVID units. Or like in Hackensack, they turn the unit into a medical unit, a general medicine unit, right? Yeah. So that they could um, then have more room for the COVID units. Well, everything that wasn't at capacity is now a anything except COVID unit. And then right. all of the main hospital beds are COVID units. So for example, there's a women's and children's hospital at uh, Hackensack, which is very nice, relatively new. And there's no children there anymore. It's just patients who do really? not have COVID. Yeah. Oh, I and, had no uh, idea. Wow. So we have a lot more consults there. Uh, than, That's we, than we used to have. But and, yeah, uh, no, I, yeah. That, I agree though that like, you know, this is a psychiatric catastrophe, even probably bigger than the COVID pandemic is going to be like the pandemic of traumatic responses that people are having now and will have into the future. And we really need to, there's something that we really need to have a concerted effort to try to really tackle. I was on call one night with Dr. Tremo and I was sitting in the doctor's lounge and we were talking on one of the computers and there was an ICU guy sitting across from us. We were talking about how our program and Rutgers was responding and how they were graduating medical students early and how some of our residents were probably going to go help with the medical patients, which has happened. And uh, the ICU guy overheard. He turned around, he looked at us and he started chatting with, with us and he just looked exasperated. He just looked like at the end of his rope, he's putting up a good front, but he said something along the lines of like, at the end of this, we're going to need you guys real bad. Yeah. And I was, I could just see it in his face. I was like, yes, you will. Cause yeah. I've worked in an outpatient PTSD clinic for a year and I know what it looks like. And you, sir, <laughs> are going to uh, have yeah. at least a touch of it. And, uh, and we, we are doing yeah. things actually. People from our program just launched a new platform for the residents in our 
institution, it's wellness initiative where we're going to have group therapy, all sorts of ways to kind of help manage the crisis psychiatrically while yeah. it's still happening. Big shout out to Donia Nazri and Jeff Tallis for that. They're, I think they're the kind of masterminds behind that. Yeah. And as well as everyone else who's helping because there's a lot of residents who are helping with that. So that's awesome. So I think that that, you know, at least closest to home will be able to help the other residents that we're working with. I can't imagine what they're going through. Some like especially the ones like the the ED residents and the medicine residents, you know. It's interesting. I think that the physician every you know, there's that old saying that physicians make the worst patients, and I think that's definitely true. It's definitely true. And I think you know, it's interesting. Whenever I talk to my medical resident friends, my emergency medicine resident friends, maybe we're talking at night after when we're both on shift, and maybe they've just had someone die or something, and they don't respond, not because they don't have those emotions. They don't respond because it's their job to just go on to the next patient and just do their job. So they don't really have the luxury of being able to respond adequately. And I think that that is necessary for a physician. For, or a nurse or a PA or an APN or whatever, RN. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it probably in the long term, especially repeatedly, probably is detrimental to some people in terms of them recovering from this type of right. traumatic experience. Because we talked about in the PTSD episode that not dealing with it or not coming in the beginning leads to a worse prognosis, right? Is mm-hmm. that kind of what you're, you're saying? Exactly, yeah. Like they're not dealing with it in the moment. And to some degree, that's uh, a mature defense mechanism. Yeah, they have to. Uh, of suppression no so that you can do your job. But also, if they're just completely repressing it, then that could lead to more suffering in the future. Quickly, for our colleagues, what should they be looking out for, do you think, to tell mm-hmm. them, I need to reach out for help? I think that one thing, there's various websites that have this information that I've actually reviewed recently. I think one thing that I often remind people, especially for men is that thing to look out for is this is in the spectrum of PTSD, but I think that men sometimes brush this under the rug, outbursts, irritability, Mm -hmm. anger, snapping at people for no reason, even to the extent where you're surprised, you know, that that's kind of a sign that maybe you need to take five because yes, you have to go and do your job, but it can get to a point where that trauma goes to the bottom of your soul and lift weights to the point where it's everything that you are. So you want to make sure that you start to nip that in the bud. So just that's one thing that I like to tell people to watch out for. Yeah, there's a resource physicianmentalhealth.com. It's a free peer support line run by volunteer psychiatrists for other physicians. Physicianmentalhealth.com is somewhere they could turn if they don't know where Mm -hmm. else to turn. Yeah. Or just grab somebody, you know, one of your colleagues and just tell them how you're feeling. You know? Yeah. If you can't bring yourself to ask for help, which is also okay right. sometimes, then just realize that it's also okay just to need a break. Right. And um, you don't have to be Superman every single day of the week. So even doing something simple like knowing your limitations, taking a day off, realizing, yes, you might feel guilty about it, but then when you get back, you're going to come at it with a renewed sense of energy and purpose. So I feel like that's an important thing to remember too. We like to end every episode by saying, if you're struggling, you do not have to struggle alone. There's help out there, 
Asking for it is not a sign of weakness and often is actually a sign of strength. You can find uh, mental health professionals through your health insurer provider's website. You can reach out to your local university hospital. You can go to psychologytoday.com. If you're really in a crisis right now, you can call 1-800-273-TALK. And remember that psychiatric conditions are medical conditions, they're neurological conditions, and they can be treated. So until next time. Adios. Peace.